Beloved, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 to 13. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And if you're visiting us and you're using the Bible in the chairs, it is found on page 1071. And if you do not own a Bible, please take that as a gift from us. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. If you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's Word. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. In 2017, it was reported that a man who was recently installed as a pastor of a big church, he was going to be presented to that church on Sunday. This man wanted to assess the church's love for their neighbors. So he devised a plan. He decided to come disguised as someone else, dressed incognito. He wore the clothes of one who was of a lower socioeconomic class. He arrived to church early, standing outside in the front, walking around, wanting to see how the congregation is doing in loving their neighbors. This huge church, sadly, only very, very, very few people interacted with this neighbor, their pastor, who they didn't know that that was actually their pastor. In fact, the man came in, 
sat in the very front. One of the ushers actually asked him to move to the back. And so he sat in the back. Service began. The elders were in on this, and the elders knew. And so when it came time for the announcements, the elders had announced about the man who was the new pastor and told him to come forward, and the congregation just erupted, erupted with an ovation, excitement, so thrilled about their new pastor. Congregation looking around. Next thing you know, the very man who sat in the back stood up and made his way to the very front. That man revealed himself as their actual pastor. Heads began to bow. The saints began to be embarrassed, feeling guilty for their lack of love towards the neighbor. Now, I wouldn't recommend the pastor's actions by any means. Wouldn't recommend disguising yourself as someone else just to see how your church is doing in love. But I do wonder that if he came here, what would be his experience? You see, the members of that congregation, they rightfully bowed their heads in shame for their lack of love towards their neighbor. It is common among the world, but it is to be different among the people of God. As the saints are the covenant community, we are to be a people marked by love because our very God is love. We are people marked by compassion because our God is compassionate. Our Savior modeled it when we trusted in Christ. His Spirit transforms us to be these types of people. You see, God's people are to be marked by genuine love and not just for some, but for all. James gets at this in this morning's passage. And so our big idea for this passage is this. As Christians, we are to not show favoritism, but instead love all neighbors. As Christians, we are to not show favoritism, but instead love all neighbors. I have two points, and they come directly from the big idea. Don't show favoritism. Devote yourself to loving your neighbor. Don't show favoritism. Devote yourselves to loving your neighbor. First point, don't show favoritism. Look at verse 1. James says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. James begins this section with a word of exhortation. And the exhortation is a prohibition, telling them what to not do. They are to not show favoritism. Well, what is favoritism? It is to make judgments 
of favoring some and despising others based upon external appearance. Favoring some and despising others based upon external appearance. The externals can be the color of one's skin, the class that one comes from, or the culture that one is in, and more. It is to discriminate. James says in verse 4 that it is to become judges with evil thoughts. And the center of favoritism is oneself. You're out for your own benefit, seeking to get ahead or at least trying to keep someone else down. It's important for us to know what also favoritism is not. Favoritism is not compassion upon those who are in need. You know, in the law, God commanded his covenant people as it pertains to a harvest, to reap but not reap as much as they can. Not reap all the way up to the edges, but to leave some for the marginalized, for the poor, for the needy. Our congregation is mostly young. It's important for us to know that favoritism is also not in having closer friends. Friendships are good. Closer friends are natural. So you're not sinning by having closer friends. One would be showing favoritism if you choose to only love your close friends and ignore everyone else. If you were to function as if this congregation only consists of you and your close friends, then one would be showing favoritism. James gives this prohibition because though we are saved by grace, we still live in this body of flesh and we are capable of sinning in such egregious ways. James says, don't show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He makes clear that favoritism is incompatible and inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ. James rarely mentions Jesus' name in the letter, and yet he makes it abundantly clear of his thoughts regarding Jesus, that Jesus is God. He is glorious, shares in the very same glory as that of God the Father, because he is God the Son in human flesh. God is one in essence and three in persons. Jesus is the Son of God who became man, the promised messianic king who walked this earth. He is the Savior of the world. He is our Lord and Savior. And during his time on earth in his earthly ministry, his ministry was marked by love. Jesus loved the downcast, the marginalized, the outcast. Jesus touched who were de- those who were deemed untouchable. He dined with those who were deemed as despised. Jesus' love and his salvation extended to all without distinction. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. Therefore, beloved, to show favoritism is to be walking in opposition with the example of Christ and the teaching of Christ. 
It is to confine the second command, which is love your neighbor as yourself. It's to confine that command exclusively to a few people. It is to be like the lawyer and ask, who then is my neighbor? It is to go on and answer that very own question saying, these people are my neighbors and everyone else ain't. It is to humanize only a few and dehumanize everyone else who doesn't fit that category. Beloved, favoritism is prevalent in our world. It has been happening since sin has entered the world. Think about the caste system in India. To where if you are one of those few castes, there is a higher up, there's a hierarchy. To where there are those who are the elite. And the further you get on, down on the totem pole, that is exactly how they treat you. But it is not just there. It's also in this country. We have classism just like every, uh, every other country. We have racism here just like every other country. In fact, this country has profited greatly off of racism. It's always sad when you see it in the world, but it's especially sad when you see it in the church. Throughout American history, churches have pushed aside passages like James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. being segregated in the local covenant community to where they are unwelcomed and dehumanized black and brown people. The very reason why you have the title or the name black churches is because of the sin of favoritism. And we'd be crazy to think that that was just a thing in the past. Favoritism still happens today based off ethnicity and off class. That the rich folk go here, the middle class go here, and the poor people go there. And if you don't fit in with that class, that congregation may look at you with suspicion. Still happens this very day. In fact, James is rebuking the churches for doing this because it happened among the people of God. He gives a parable like, a little story real quick in James chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Illustrates it for them. He says, for if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you look at the illustration, you'd see that the very thing that James emphasized is one's apparel. You see, the people then, like us, Today, the clothing or the fit is the first thing that we notice from somebody. We're checking out what they're rocking, and then we look down at their shoe game. And we can begin to make assessments, sizing them up. The first visitor he named, 
The man was shining bright like a diamond. His clothes was of great quality. He was standing out with bright clothing, and he wore a gold ring, signifying that he ain't hurting. But he wasn't the only one mentioned. James describes the other man by his class and his clothing. He says the poor person dressed in filthy clothes. This man's clothes were dirty, raggedy, and smelly. They go into the very same Christian gathering. And in one sense, we want to praise God for that. We want them to come, people of all classes, we want to come to the corporate gathering. Our gathering is for all kinds of people. Well, it wasn't cool. And what was striking was the kind of hospitality that was shown to one and that was withheld from the other. James says in verse 3, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, they paid him special attention. Because of his fit and the class that he appeared to be in, this one was worthy of their hospitality. Likely trying to get something from him, they wanted to cater to him. And to this very day, we can have the very same mentality where we are having a disposition of being more favorable towards those who may look cool or look rich, so we may give them special treatment. But James says, that's not what happened with the poor person. He says, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit, on the, sit here on the floor by my footstool. The poor person was regarded as worthless. They were unhospitable. His seat was by their feet. This man was dehumanized and devalued. Here's the thing, beloved. God has made every single person in his image according to his likeness, which means every human being has intrinsic value. Every human being is worthy of dignity, honor, love, and respect, regardless of how they look or where they come from. But what favoritism does, or what we do with favoritism is that we ignore the fact that this person is made in the image of God. And we say that their value is solely based on the external. And it leads us to show kindness to some and to withhold it from others. Notice that the problem in this text wasn't that they showed kindness to one. The problem was that they didn't show kindness to the other visitor. Look what he says in verse 6. James says, yet you have dishonored the poor. The very people. In James chapter 1 verse 27 says that pure and undefiled religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. 
the very people we are to care for, the very people we are to welcome in and be hospitable towards, James says that this congregation and these people have despised and dishonored them. Beloved, we are the people who welcome one another in love just as God has done for us in Christ. You know, one of the things I really love about our church is our hospitality. By God's grace, I feel like we do a pretty good job in welcoming one another. In interacting with visitors who come frequently, it's one of the things that they point out is how hospitable this church is, to which, man, that is a testimony of God's sanctifying work in us. Our prayers that that would continue. And, beloved, we also have to be on guard to not show favoritism. We can't assume that because by God's grace alone that there's a culture of hospitality here, that we are exempt from showing favoritism. We can so easily greet those who we think are like us and willfully ignore those who we think are different. To even bring it closer to home for us. The question for us to consider is, how is your hospitality in your home? Is it marked by favoritism? Or is it marked by sincere love? As you examine your dinner table and the guests, are you only inviting those who look like you, who are in the same season of life as you, or the same class as you? Or is it as diverse as we see God's people is in the scriptures? Beloved, I'm 100% convinced that being hospitable to a diverse people in our personal life leads us to have a preparedness to be hospitable toward diversity of people in our public and corporate gathering. Because you're already in the habit of loving and welcoming and interacting with those who look like you and who don't. Parents, we're to be a people who teach our children to show love to all kinds of people. And not only we instruct that, but it'll also be good for us to model that. We want our children to get it. We want them, we should want them to actually see it. And children. You know, it's good to have favorite toys, favorite games, favorite sports, favorite hobbies. These things are good for God has uniquely wired us with particular interests. And that is a wonderful thing. But what is not wonderful is to have a favorite type of person. A favorite kinds of people. Because God doesn't have that disposition towards us. And every single person is a person made in God's image. So what I would encourage is for you to love all kinds of people, those who share the same interests as you and those who do not. 
and to follow Jesus' example in loving all kinds of people. Love, as we think about favoritism, one of the realities is, is that favoritism creates division based upon externals. But if we were to not be a people who refuse, if we were to be a people who refuse to show favoritism, it's important for us to know that that doesn't mean that we erase or ignore differences. For we shouldn't. We should recognize every person as how God has made them. Being mindful of the class that they might be in and showing love to them. We shouldn't be a people who suppress or ignore differences because God doesn't. In fact, his gospel and his kingdom are so powerful that it transcends our differences. That what God does in saving people is that he unites a diversity of people in Christ. And he unites us to one another. God has created people differently. He created male and female. People of different backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures. And Christ, as we read in our scripture call to worship, he has ransomed a diverse people. A people of every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. The new covenant community is not one marked by sameness. It is diverse. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them all. The heavenly assembly in heaven right now consists of a people of men, women, children of every tongue, tribe, language, and nation united in Jesus. And beloved, the local church is gathering. It is a foretaste of heaven. This is why one of our prayers is that Midtown Baptist will be a place that is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, and multi-class, walking in love and unity. Because it testifies to the power of the gospel. It testifies that we follow Jesus and that we are united in him and that God has sent his son. And if we want that to be true here, we cannot show favoritism. Because that actively works against the very vision that God has for his churches. James goes on. He went on to ground a foolishness of favoritism in two realities. These two realities are God's election and their experience from the rich. Look at verse 5. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. As we saw a number of weeks ago in James 1, God has compassion upon the poor. He loves and cares for them. And in his love, when he elected and predestined a people to be in Christ, the poor were included. James isn't saying that every single poor person is a part of the elect, and nor is he saying that God only saves the poor. But what James is saying 
is that when God predestined diverse people, the poor were included. And so what that means is that back then and now, God is saving a people, and that includes the financial poor. Like all other Christians, they too, by God's grace, heard the gospel. They were regenerated, and they responded to the gospel with repentance and faith in Jesus. They have been exalted in Christ, spiritually rich. Like every other Christian, they are co-heirs with Christ in his kingdom. Loving him because, they, because he first loved them. God chose a people. Now, it's important for us to know that when we talk about God's election of people, it's important for us to remember that God wasn't showing favoritism. He was being merciful in saving a people. For every saved person has this in common. We're sinners. We deserve God's holy and righteous wrath, and yet God is choosing to be merciful, beloved. And when God chose a people, he didn't do it because what they can bring to him as if they can add to him. God is the only independent and complete being, meaning God needs no one and nothing. Nothing and no one can add to him. Which means that when God shows his love and kindness, he does it without any ulterior motive. Which means that his love is truly loving. It is always for the good of others. And yet James is rebuking them for he said that they are dishonoring and have dishonored the very ones that God has exalted. And as God's covenant people, they were to reflect God in their actions. Walking in step with his character. And yet James rebukes them saying, you have dishonored the poor. Favoritism is foolish in light of God's election. But not just that, it is also James appeals to their experience. He says, don't the rich despise you? Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? So during that time, the unbelieving rich, some of them would persecute Christians and churches. They oppressed the people of God. They sued them. They hated and slandered Jesus Christ. And so based from their very own experience regarding the rich, it's like, why are you showing them favoritism? This is how they treat you. Why are you treating them as if they are the cream of the crop? When they treat you as if you're the bottom of the barrel. There has to be some sort of ulterior motive to get something from them. It makes no sense at all. James is making it clear that we are to be a people who are marked by love. And our love is to be extended to all without distinction. 
to genuinely love and care for a people. Patterning our lives after Christ. Loving others just like we see Jesus in Scripture love during his earthly ministry. Beloved, our hospitality is to not be like my experience at a restaurant here in Memphis a number of years ago. I went to a restaurant, pretty famous restaurant, me and my homeboy, Treston Gamble. And y'all, the service was terrible. And I put emphasis on terrible. Our waiter, he was extremely cold. Rarely checked in on us. And then at the very end of our meal, he folded our receipts and tossed them at us. Tristan and I were taken aback. Now, could have been because he was serving two black men and he was a white man. Could have been a number of reasons. But the service was horrendous. And James is telling us that the people of God, we shouldn't be that way. Instead, if we're going to be hospitable, which we should, our service should be far more like Chick-fil-A. Come on now, I heard it. I'm about to come with it now. <laughs> Man, if you've gone to Chick-fil-A, which I'm sure almost all of y'all have, you know that the culture is one of great kindness. Regardless of how you look, what you wear, the color of your skin, or the type of car you drive, you can drive a Tesla, you can drive a Hoopty. They're going to treat you with an abundant measure of kindness. You can order everything on the menu. Or you can just order a small fry. They still going to be abundantly kind to you. They're going to serve you, and at the very end, they're going to be like, my pleasure. With a real Kool-Aid smile. As the people of God, our hospitality should be like that towards anyone who walks in those doors. Genuine and sincere. Loving and hospitable. Beloved, our hospitality is to be set apart in such a way that it testifies to God's love and is to be done with sincerity, not putting on, but being very serious and earnest and showing love because God has done that for us in Christ. We want to help make people's experience conducive for hearing the word. And so our hospitality is very important. It can make and break an experience. We can faithfully reflect God's love or we can betray his character. The very character we as a people are intended and God is conforming us to reflect. So, beloved, may we not be a people who show favoritism. If we're not going to show favoritism, we are to be a people who are to devote ourselves to loving our neighbor. This brings us to our second point. And just a heads up, the first point is the longest. 
But we are to devote ourselves to loving neighbor. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, if, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and, convict, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So instead of showing favoritism, we are to love our neighbors. This is the fulfillment of the law of freedom and also the royal law. It is the same law. It is the law of the king and the kingdom. As we read in the scripture reading, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was asked, what is the greatest command? And he answered the question by quoting two verses, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus chapter 19, where he says the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he backdoed it. He said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as we saw in Luke chapter 10, everyone is our neighbor. In Jesus' earthly ministry, he perfectly did this. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we are to love like him, being compassionate and serving those who are in need. His blood has freed us. And so may we love in this type of way. He's done everything possible for us to do this. His law has been written on our hearts. He has given us his spirit. And so we are to follow Jesus in this way. And as we do so, by faith, we are doing well. Scripture says, Galatians chapter 5, what matters is faith working through love. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says that we've been called to freedom. Not only we should not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but instead, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. As God's covenant people, we are to be marked by love being charitable to those who are like us and different from us and doing that without discrimination. James says that as we do this, by God's grace, we are doing well. But then he goes on in verse 9. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You know, in life... There are some things that go together, and there are some things that don't. You know, like plaids and solids, they go together. If you're into sports, Jordan and Pippen, before their beef, they went together. You know, Miles Morales and Gwen Stacy, they go together. And that there are some things that don't go together, like black shoes and white socks. Not throwing shade at anybody who does that. Here's a fashion tip, though. They don't go together. <laughs> what else doesn't go together is like Harry Potter and Baltimore. Or Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. But James is making clear here that 
loving your neighbor and showing favoritism does not go together. He's making it abundantly clear that you're either going to do one or you're going to do the other, but you can't do both at the very same time because they're very opposite. To love one's neighbor is to be after their very own good. And to show favoritism is to be apathetic towards some neighbors, to not care about their good. And not only that, but sometimes to be antagonistic towards their good. And so James is making it abundantly clear that they don't go together and that favoritism is disobedience to the command of loving your neighbor as yourself. He said that if you show favoritism, you are breaking the law because the law goes together. Look at verse 10. He says, for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Y'all, the law, it is unified. They go together. The Ten Commands, we can't compartmentalize them things. Okay? Like, we can't treat the Ten Commands as if it's McDonald's. Meaning, we can't have it our way. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't say that this one is very important and this one is unimportant. God has set the terms and has said it's either all or nothing. And obeying most merits nothing. Y'all, we know this instinctively. Think about driving. You get caught speeding. You break a law, you broke the law. You're not going to tell the officer, well, officer, at least I drove with my seatbelt on. And I had two hands on the steering wheel. And every time I switched lanes, I turned on my blinker. That's got to count for something, right? That officer going to look at you like you're crazy. At least he should. Like, no, you broke the law. And what God is saying here is that his commands go together. Even as you think about the Ten Commands, the second part of the Ten Commands are all about how you are to relate to your neighbor, which is why it is summarized in love your neighbor as yourself. So it's either by faith we are fulfilling this or we are violating the law, but we can't have it a third way. James illustrates this in verse 11. He says, for he who said, well, he gets unpacked. He says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. The law is unified, y'all. And its source is one God. And that one God demands wholehearted obedience to his commands. Think about the great command, what is to love God with your entire being. So to have disdain towards one of the Ten Commands actually reveals one's heart towards God who gave the commands. So how we relate to man actually says something about how we are relating to God. James goes on to give us the seventh and sixth command, which is a part of the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not commit adultery. God prohibits adultery, which is all forms of sexual intercourse outside of the marriage union of one man and one woman. 
Jesus took it a step further, getting at the heart in Matthew 5 when he says that you shall not even, com- you shall not even lust. For whoever lusts after someone has committed adultery in their own hearts. And James goes on. He says, you shall not commit murder, which is the malicious intention of taking one's life. And in Matthew 5, Jesus also spoke about that. He said, you shouldn't even have anger in your heart. Because anger is the seed that leads to murder. And a disposition in one's heart towards fellow neighbors should not be one of anger. And so loving neighbor ain't doing one and disobeying the other. But loving neighbor is doing both. And to disobey one is to break the law and disobey God himself. So how are we doing? Even as we think about this, as we read the commands... What I know is that all of us are guilty. We do not love our neighbor as we should. We are guilty of showing some sort of favoritism. It's because we are sinners. Being sinful means we can't keep God's law and also means that we don't even want to. This is why the gospel is such great news that God in his love sent his son to perfectly obey the law and to offer himself as a sacrifice to bear the curse of sin that you and I rightfully deserve, Jesus took it upon himself and atoned for every transgression. His blood covers it all. For all who have trusted in him, our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. So we extol the mercy of God in Christ. And he changes us. Even as we sung in Rock of Ages, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Jesus' sacrifice does both. Cleanses us and changes us to be a people who are marked by love. And so, friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, I am glad that you are here. I'm sure you detest favoritism. You may have even experienced the ugliness of it. And you want it to end. But, friends, what is the hope? Because favoritism is a sin. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to end favoritism. But also the reality is, not only do you hate it, I don't know you, but there's one thing I do know, is that you yourself have shown it. Some way. Somehow. To some people. Which means that you are convicted the very thing that you condemn, you are guilty of committing. So what's the hope? There's only one. His name is Jesus. Friends, I would implore you this very day to trust in Jesus Christ. 
He is the Savior of the world. He offers a salvation to you right now to where you could be forgiven, you could be cleansed, you could be made new, you could be accepted into God's kingdom. Not by works, but by trusting in Christ alone. We talk with our members after service. We love to have these combos. Look at verses 12 and 13. James says, Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God has saved us by his grace, and as his covenant people, we are to show that in our actions. Salvation leads to fruit. It always does. We're to be, have a lifestyle of a lifetime being a people whose speech and conduct is mar- are marked by love because we love Jesus. And by faith, as we do this, we fulfill the royal law. But he also sobers us knowing that we will stand before God and give an account. That reality is to shape how we are to live. It doesn't mean that we are saved by works, but what it does mean is that we are saved by faith, and our faith is to be exhibited by works of love. Those of us who are beneficiaries of mercy are to be a people who show mercy. James goes on in verse 13, for judgment is without mercy. To the one who has not shown mercy. Think about the parable of the unforgiving servant. In Matthew 18, the man had an insurmountable debt that he owed to the king. He pleaded for the king to have mercy, and the king forgave him. But then what did he do? He saw a man who owed him very, very, very little in comparison to what he owed the king, and yet he refused to show mercy. So when the king heard, he locked him up and threw him in prison, telling him that you should have had mercy on that man, similar to how I had mercy on you. Jesus says, It positively, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Those of us who have embraced mercy by trusting in Jesus are to be a people who extend mercy to others. Pointing people to the mercy of God in very tangible ways. is a hard word. Beloved, if you are convicted, I want you to be mindful of the reality that God is merciful. That he truly forgives all who confess, who are contrite, and who turn away. James gives a hard word, but he ends with a word of hope. Did you catch it? He said, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that was the most vividly displayed at the cross of Jesus Christ. We're at the cross. God's justice 
and mercy met, where in his justice he condemned sin in the flesh. And in his mercy, he condemned his son in the stead of sinners like you and I. And not only that, but he rose from the grave. And for all who trust in him, his word towards us is a word of mercy. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, there is no wrath reserved for you because Jesus paid it all. And so if we're going to be a people who reflect mercy, we first need to meditate on the mercy of God in Christ. How he has loved us dearly. And from that, we're to be a people who want to extend that mercy to others. So, beloved, we've got to rehearse the gospel. Every day, think about the fact that God gives us new mercies. Think about the reality that God is rich in mercy. And ask God, how can I tangibly display that to others? We are to be a people who show mercy. You know that pastor? I'm sure he was very frustrated and angry with the church. So I asked at the very beginning, I do wonder if he were to visit our congregation, what would his experience be? Would we welcome him in love and display tangible Evidences of kindness. My hope and prayer is that we would. That through our love being shown, he would have been glad that he had visited us. That we sought to get to know him. That we sought to serve him and point him to the love of Jesus Christ. Beloved, may we be a people who are welcoming to all kinds of people, showing love because we have been loved greatly by God in Christ. There's no one more different between us and God. He's holy, we're unholy. He's a creator, we're the created, we're sinful, we've rebelled, and yet look what he has done. He's shown us mercy. He has welcomed us in. May we reflect that to others. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we do praise you for your mercy. God, you are gracious and kind, loving and generous. Father, may we regularly meditate upon these truths and may we eagerly seek to reflect your love and care to one another and to our neighbors. Every kind of neighbor for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we read, mercy triumphs over judgment. And what a word of hope. So now, Let's sing extolling God for his mercy towards us in Christ. In the song, his mercy is more. Let's stand now.